Welcome back to Across the Movie Aisle, presented by Bulwark Plus. I am your host, Sonny Bunch, culture editor of The Bulwark. Uh, I'm joined, as always, by Alyssa Rosenberg of The Washington Post and Peter Suderman of Reason Magazine. Alyssa, Peter, how are you today? I'm well. I'm happy to be talking about movies with friends. Uh, first up, Oscar nominations are here. Uh, planning for the ceremony has begun. Much to discuss. Let's dive in. Uh, let's talk nominees first. Jane Campion's The Power of the Dog led the way with 12 nominations, including uh, nominees in every major category for which it was eligible. Uh, Dune, meanwhile, was the biggest box office of the year to rack up nominations, scoring 10 of them, including Best Picture. And crowd pleasers like Belfast and West Side Story each got seven noms, while King Richard grabbed six, including Will Smith's third and fourth Oscar nominations for Best Actor uh, and as Producer, on a Best Picture-nominated film. This is his third Best Actor nomination. I think there's a decent chance this is his year. We'll see. I don't know. Um, don't Look Up grabbed a Best Picture nod, but uh, somewhat more confusingly, it also got a Best Original Screenplay nod. I don't know if anybody—I haven't read the screenplay. Maybe it's brilliant, but uh, judging by what's on the screen, maybe that was a, that was a mistake. I don't know. Um, and with four uh, nominations, but none in the acting categories, it seems pretty unlikely that it will win Best Picture, thankfully. Fingers crossed on that one. You'll never know. Um, but what will? What will? Uh, I am not terribly fond of the idea of snubs in the Oscars. No film deserves a little gold man or even a chance at winning one. But I was a little bit disappointed to see No Love for Pig or Red Rocket or The French Dispatch, kind of most surprisingly. Um, and Spider-Man No Way Home got just one nomination, leading to outrage from Oscar pundits and the patron saint of nerddom, Kevin Smith. Uh, saying that, you know, where's the love for Peter Parker, man? Um, but hey, I'm sure audiences are still going to tune into the Oscars because who doesn't want to see if the three-hour Japanese drama Drive My Car takes away a, a bunch of nominations, right? That's what we're all here for. Anyway, um, the show itself is shrouded in mystery. The Hollywood Reporter suggests that they will have three hosts, each tackling an hour of the ceremony, um, because as we all know, the reason that the show has been in calamitous ratings decline is the uh, the shortage of the number of talking heads introducing the other people who are going to talk about the movies uh, that are going to win the awards. Uh, more amusing was word that the Oscars themselves would not require attendees to be vaccinated in order to come to the show. Uh, there is, of course, an amusing hypocrisy angle to all this. Everybody loves hypocrisy. The, the mecca of liberal Hollywood is refusing to engage in mandates uh, or vaccine cards or, you know, whatever, you know, little folks have to deal with. That's that's not for them. Um, as I noted on Twitter, though, I would love I would pay two hundred dollars. I would pay two hundred dollars cash to anybody who gave me a list of the nominees that would not be allowed to come to the ceremony if ushers were checking vaccination cards because that's literally the only reason the Oscars aren't requiring this they don't they don't want to embarrass any big stars and you know LA is already kind of weird with vaccines as it is God only knows who hasn't gotten their shots and as we were going to air uh, today we're taping on Monday as always uh, we found out that the Oscars is gonna do a Twitter Twitter vote on most popular movie and uh, the biggest crowd pleasing cheering moment and all I have to say to that is I hope we're all ready for Academy Award winning Zack Snyder's Justice League coming up because if there's any group that knows how to rig a Twitter poll, it is the release the Snyder Cut folks. Um, uh, so uh, this is all very exciting. But again, the, the big question is who's going to win? Who's, gonna, who's, who's winning? Who's losing? Alyssa, which movie do you think will win Best Picture? And uh, which movie do you want to win Best Picture? Perhaps more importantly. I am terrible at Oscarology, um, and I'm just going to say that I assume the sheer number of nominations The Power of the Dog got meant that it's going to win and that Jane Campion's probably going to win for Best Director because people seem excited to give Jane Campion more statuettes. Um, 
And like you, a lot of my favorite movies of the year are just nowhere in this conversation, right? Like No Pig, No The Last Duel, which honestly is one of the movies from last year that has most stuck on my mind and that I think is most sort of interesting and accomplished in ways that I would have loved to see be part of the conversation, Know The French Dispatch. Um, And so given this list, I think the movie that I'm probably rooting for is Dune, Um, both because, you know, it is a spectacle that is a testament to the power of theatrical movie going and also because of the degree of difficulty involved and the extent to which uh, Denny Villeneuve and everyone involved just really stuck the landing. It's an extremely enjoyably acted movie. It looks and sounds incredible. Um, and it is a really deft adaptation of material that has long been considered basically impossible to do well. So of my available choices, that's probably where my heart is leading me. Um, but, you know, Oscars for Pig, man, you know, just this the scene in the restaurant with where with, you know, Nicolas Cage casually destroying another person's sense of himself. Um, I don't know if that's not Oscar worthy. I don't know what it is. Yeah. Uh, kind of surprised, uh, Peter, that Denis Villeneuve was uh, snubbed for the best director. You know, everyone, everyone, that's a big, big product, a big production. Nobody, uh, nobody wants to see that guy get, uh, miss out on his chance to win an Oscar for Dune. But- Especially since Dune is a movie that is just so directed, right? I mean, it's not, you know, it's in a different way than say something like The French Dispatch, but it is very much the product of a singular directorial vision. It feels like, it doesn't feel like somebody just made Dune, although it does certainly uh, feels like somebody adapted Frank Herbert and was in many ways faithful to and, you know, loved the source material. But it also really feels like a Denny V production, right? This like is a movie that is drawing from um, and built out of all of his visual obsessions. And oral obsessions as yes. well. Yes. Yeah. If this movie, if if Dune doesn't win Best Sound, I will be I would be very surprised. I mean, I feel like there will be a very strong campaign there, and also Best Score. I'm I'm cheering for it for Best Score, but uh, I feel like Peter might have thoughts on that as well. I feel like Peter has stronger thoughts on on scores than either Alyssa or I usually do. I mean, the, the sound in Dune is incredible um, and just a, a great test of your like home theater speaker system. Also a reason to go out to a movie theater. Uh, it is, I mean, if Dune wins for uh, best sound design um, or, or for best score, it will prove the adage that the movie that wins for the, in the sound categories always wins for most sound because there is an awful lot of sound. And it's a little like the, you know, the, uh, the complaints or, you know, the kind of quasi-criticisms that all of the costume um, Oscars always end up going to super elaborate period pieces rather than much more subtle uh, contemporary films where where uh, where the costume designer has figured out how to use more ordinary and contemporary um, clothing in order to, to tell a story and to help sell the characters. And I think that's fair to some extent. At the same time, like, Dune just is more striking uh, aurally than almost anything I've heard, certainly than anything else I heard in the last year and uh, than most of the things I've heard, you know, in a decade or two. And and, and it's just a, the kind of movie that you want to go and listen to. Uh, and and, and the, the audio sells the story and sells the picture. And they're sort of like, this is, there is a, you know, there's a, there's a school of film criticism um, that just talks about film as story that just talks about film as character 
uh, basically treats it as as a kind of like, oh, this is a visual novel. And I think that those things are interesting and it's not like you should ignore story and character, but there's another school of film criticism that I've always felt myself a little more attached to that treats film fundamentally as shots, cuts, and sound decisions, right? That it's just that it's just the exclusively cinematic elements that make film film and that that's what critics should uh, should focus on the most. I don't think that I fully agree, like I said, with with either school, you know, at the same time, uh, if I'm going to count myself in, on one side or another, it's that I think that film critics should always be thinking most about the things that are that are essentially cinematic. And Dune is, to me, the most essentially cinematic, maybe along with The French Dispatch, but I think the most essentially cinematic film of the year. And it is also, uh, it's also the only film on this list that is very clearly a popular film. Um, and so I- I don't know I, that that's true. I don't know. I think don't, I think you could make the case for Don't Look Up, which is which maybe. was the second, the second most popular film in the history of Netflix, which is not nothing. It's not nothing to sneeze but at. Do, I mean, do, do we actually think people watched it all the way through and like paid attention to it, or do we think that people question. put it on and made some hot pockets and caught like some funny Leonardo DiCaprio bits, some Totinos, had some pizza rolls. <laughs> Uh, I, uh, I mean, it's hard to say it's because uh, nobody knows. I mean, I, I am not one of these people who says, oh, well, if, if, you know, it did 400 million minutes of okay. viewing, then that means it would have grossed $2.6 billion. I mean, so let's say by, let's say that Dune then is the most, is, is the film that is most clearly a popular film by the classic definition Sure. Which is this is a big budget movie that actually did reasonably well. I think not as well as it would have in a non-pandemic scenario, but did reasonably well at the box office, uh, and that was uh, at least mostly liked by critics and mostly liked by viewers. Right? That's it is a a populist and popular film more so, at least more classically than any other film on this list. And so that's why I think I, I, it is. I it's, it's the film that I think that I would like to see win out of the pictures that were nominated anyway. And it's also why I think that this is, even though Power of the Dog kind of looks like the winner on paper here, it's why I think that Dune stands a chance of becoming the winner uh, is because I think there's pretty clearly a sense of anxiety within the Academy over the last couple of years that they're, that the, the Academy Awards have become... Uh, and a prestige honor for a little scene film that nobody cares about. And that's why the awards themselves are, are losing stature. Uh, the um, uh, Richard Rushfeld at the Ankler has written about this, about like the way the, Os the power of the Oscars has shrunk. Now, part of that last year was just, it was a pandemic year. It was weird. Move, you know, a lot of movies didn't come out, but it was happening slowly, even before that, even before that happened, which is why uh, we saw, the Academy attempt to sort of write this by talking about setting up a, a best popular film most category, popular film. which was just insane. And they never figured out how they were going to do that, but they recognized that they had a problem with not honoring films that, pe that ordinary viewers, the people that they are, that studios <laughs> yeah. want to connect with actually saw or cared about in any way. And I don't think don't look up may meet that test better than some of the other films on this list. It may even meet that test better than Nomadland, which was last year's winner. But I don't think of Don't Look Up as a true popular film in the classic sense. The only thing on that list that is, is Dune. And Dune happens to be a pretty great movie uh, as well. And so I, I think it both should win. And I also think that it has a pretty good chance of winning, even though, like Alyssa, I am terrible at predicting the Oscars. I don't think Dune has much of a chance of winning, honestly. And I don't I don't think that the... Uh 
I think I think the the argument that this is a popular film so it should be awarded actually works against it in a weird way because I think there is a, there is an there's a I think there's a very vocal and strong pushback against that sort of thing in the academy. I mean, I think if they're going to find a I think if if they're going to find a settle a settle a settle choice, right? Uh, you know, if they're going to settle on something that is uh, in theaters and and has has done well with audiences, even if it hasn't put up the box office, it's going to be something like Belfast or West Side Story, which are which are, which both have got got plenty of nominations, are both very very much liked and uh, are like kind of crowd pleasing sorts of films. Belfast more so than West Side Story, at least in terms of how it sends you out of the screening room. Uh, but I, I do think that uh, I would be surprised if The Power of the Dog won. I wouldn't be shocked, but I would be surprised because it is, uh, I don't know, it's kind of... Belfast kind is of not that much of a crowd pleaser. I mean, I, I agree it plays like one, but the movie made $21.5 million at the U.S. box office. It pleased very few crowds. No, I, I, I like that movie too. I mean, I I, I agree. I understand yeah. that argument. I understand that argument, but that doesn't change the fact that the audiences who do see it and the the people, the sort of people who go to see it, are the the sort of old Academy voters who uh, you know are going to be watching it at home on DVD anyway. I think we so get I'm a like, Jane Campion Best Director, but Dune wins Best Picture, and it will be a weird director picture split. Uh, it, it, that like again raises the eternal question: Can you have the best movie but not the best, director? best director? Yeah, I mean, I assume the fact that Alana Haim didn't get nominated for best actress means Licorice Pizza has no chance. Um, and also, I think that's nonsense. I think she makes that movie, um, and it is insane to me to see it nominated for best picture without her getting nominated for best actress. But maybe that's yeah. just me. What do you guys make of the uh, the this this idea of having you know people on Twitter vote for their favorite movies and then they're going to pick three three of the folks to come to the Academy next year and give an award? They want normal people on the stage. What if the three of us? What if we vote and we all get it and we can go <gasps> and we could we could pitch across the movie aisle to the you know at this Cinema point brings by, America together. By we, this like, point, there will only be like four million people watching the Oscars, uh, you know, so it won't be really that much bigger of an audience than our show, which does millions upon millions of downloads. The, but the like, Academy often seems out of touch. It's true, but I think this is one place where they've really you know put their finger on the pulse of of real America because that's where the normal people are is on Twitter. Twitter. Yeah, it's right. one thing that we all know <laughs> is that Twitter is where the normies are. Yes. That's why twenty percent of America, all of whom are normies. Yeah. It's gonna it's gonna end up being some weird letterboxed movie and somebody's gonna the person who wins is gonna go up there and like give a speech in all lowercase uh letters somehow. We'll know we'll know through the the screen that it's a irony soaked diatribe. Well and and finally finally <laughs> we, we do I, I am curious I am curious to to think about who they're going to pick to host host this thing because it is a didn't, it's like I think as we were starting to tape they announced that it's going to be Amy Schumer, Wanda Sykes and Regina King. Did they actually or I heard it was I heard that was rumored. Is that is that uh, for sure? Should I we thought Variety said that. Check? Let's uh, do some live efforting while we while we're talking here. The, uh Variety says yes. Variety, Variety is, says Variety says Amy Schumer, Regina Hall, and, and Wanda Sykes. There we go. So uh, that sounds terrible. I got to be honest. That does not sound that does not sound like a, a hosting trio that interests me because I wanted uh, Aaron Rodgers, Joe Rogan, and Dave Chappelle to be the three hosts. I feel like that would be the that's people, the unity people, ticket right it, there. It would be a talker. That That's the unity ticket. Certainly can, be a talker. And then, and then Ricky Gervais comes out to give best picture. He's got his pint of beer 
And he's like, oh, I hate all of you people. This raises uh, the you're question, all, you're who's losers. the most inoffensive person in Hollywood? I mean, I assume it's Dwayne Johnson, right? Or Tom Hanks? Tom Hanks, Tom Hanks. Dwayne Johnson. You know who like has is like the 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 secret candidate for this is Bob Odenkirk, because everybody loves that guy. And, and when he had his, I believe it was a heart attack. Okay. When he had his his health issue on the set of Better Call Saul, like normally that's the time when you see the ten percent of, of people, even for like a beloved star, who come out and be like, actually, this guy sucks because you remember in two thousand five he did this one thing to his yeah. ex and it was so and like no, I don't I don't feel like I genuinely <laughs> did not see. One mean tweet about Bob Odenkirk, like one mean snarky article in a bad tabloid. It was all everybody was just like, man, that's sad. We all love Bob. Come back, Bob. Maybe Bob well, Odenkirk was, should host the Oscars. I would well, actually he, watch that. He was so great in Mr. Show. He's like actually funny and clever. He's he's also turns out to be a, a pretty great dramatic actor. He has he actually has the chops to do it. But of course, he's a middle aged white guy. Uh, and I feel like the Oscars are trying to move beyond that. Yeah. Math. Good. We'll get Amy Schumer and and the rest. That'll be, that'll be great. Why not just have Schumer and <laughs> Tina Fey do it? They they put together a couple good shows for the that, Globes, that was, right? That's Wasn't that Amy Poehler? And oh, was Tina that Fey? Amy Poehler? Oh no, sorry, Amy Poehler. You're canceled. Not, not Tina. Not not Amy Schumer. God, this sounds awful. Actually, I I'm just not. I'm not looking. The only so, thing, so, I, Sonny, the, the good news for you is that after each hour, the host that you don't like will be done, right? So you'll only have to, to go through one hour of each host. No, but the question then is what but happens when- But it's still gonna be three hours long. That's short. These things often run closer to four. My question is what happens when inevitably the Oscars runs to three hours and 42 minutes when it's, you know, the Apocalypse Now Redux plus a couple of like, plus the behind the scenes. That's, what, that's, when, that's when Ricky Gervais comes parachuting in. Dwayne Johnson the, and Vin Diesel will take the stage and fight to the death. Uh, all right. Well, I don't know. I I am I am very skeptical about how all this is going to work. I feel like we I, learned a lot in this segment. I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen here. Uh, but I do think I have a feeling. I have a feeling, and it's a dumb bad feeling. I'm just going to guess that Belfast wins. So I'm going to throw that out there. You can we can come back to that. People can yell at me in a month when I'm wrong. Aren't all it's your fine. feelings dumb and bad, Sonny? No, many of my feelings are dumb and good. So that's <laughs> you know that is. The, I feel like many of your feelings are smart and bad. <laughs> I, well, that's that's like the four quadrants of Sunny, right? There's smart, smart and bad, smart and good, dumb and bad, dumb and good, and like I don't know the Oscars, uh, folks. The Oscars. Every every Oscar thought goes in dumb and bad. All right, that's it for this dumb segment. Uh, a quick programming note: rather than posting both episodes of Across the Movie Aisle on Tuesday, as we have been doing, uh, we've decided to spread the love a little bit. We're going to put main episodes up on Tuesday. They'll be available simultaneously on Substack and your preferred podcast app. You know, iTunes, Spotify, whatever. I don't think we're on Stitcher. I hate Stitcher. Uh, maybe we are. If we're if you're listening to this on Stitcher, I apologize. The Stitcher people are weird. Um, the bonus episode will post on Fridays, and it will continue uh, to only be available to members of Bulwark Plus. So sign up today at atma.thebulwark.com to get the bonus episode that's going to be on Fridays. You can also get an RSS feed that'll take your uh, take the show right to your you know Spotify or iTunes or whatever. Again, like uh, actually, I don't think it does Spotify. It doesn't matter. Point is, uh, you, if you, if you sign up for Bulwark Plus, you get the you get the RSS feed. It, it, it works great. Um, this week's bonus episode, uh, since I've been talking about it, it's going to be a sad one. Tribute to the life and work of Ivan Reitman, who passed away. Uh, last night as the Super Bowl was happening. Again, we're taping on Monday, happened on Sunday, very sad. Um, so we're going to be talking about him. And now on to the main event, Death on the Nile. 
consider this your spoiler warning. If you've never read the book or seen the movies, look out. Spoilers are coming your way. Uh, Kenneth Branagh returns to the role of Hercule Poirot and hops back on the, the director's chair for the sequel to Murder on the Orient Express, uh, which sees the world's most famous detective take his talents to Egypt. Uh, but before he gets there, we spend a few uh, minutes learning the secret origin of his incredible, indelible mustache. Uh, that's right. It's a somber black and white origin story about his facial hair. Uh, and it helps us understand the backstory of this fastidious crime solver, et cetera, et cetera. But mostly, you know, the mustache. Where did that mustache come from? Now we know. And then after that, we shift to the reason we're all here. Murder! The murders. Uh, the plot is relatively straightforward. Poirot joins newlyweds Simon Doyle, who's played by Army Hammer, and the fabulously wealthy Lynette Ridgway, Gal Gadot, uh, on a Nile cruise as they attempt to flee Simon's jilted lover, Jacqueline de Belfort, who is played by Emma Mackey. Um, uh, she is obsessed with ruining their honeymoon uh, because uh, they were engaged. Now they're not engaged. It's very sad. Uh, joining the happy couple and the unhappy detective attempting to keep an eye on the proceedings as a colorful cast of side characters, uh, played by luminaries like Annette Benning, Letitia Wright, uh, Russell Brand, Rose Leslie, and others. Uh, all of them are suspicious in their own right, and all of them become subs- uh, blah blah blah. All of them become suspects after someone dies, and then another person dies, and then a third person dies after that. So many deaths. So many tears in the fabric of society. Uh, so many chances for Branagh to look morose as he contemplates not only the thin and weary nature of our souls, but also man's in- inhumanity to his fellow. Whatever. You, know, you get the idea. Look, here's the thing. I actually really like the simplicity of the storytelling and the not quite convoluted nature of the murder mystery. It's like fake convoluted, can we say, right? It's not really that convoluted. It's pretend convoluted, if that makes sense. Uh, More than that, though, I just enjoyed watching beautiful people dressed up in nice fancy clothes engaging with human emotions like lust and jealousy and maternal affection, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Despite being faintly ridiculous as all such murder mysteries are and kind of have to be to make sense, uh, it's a movie that's very emotionally grounded. It felt like adults were doing adult things on a big screen. What a rare sight. I do have complaints. The mustache intro for starters. Uh, But also the thing, it it looks weirdly cheap looks weirdly cheap anytime we see an exterior shot or a background like it was all shot in a studio and it was just this terrible green screen behind them um and it made everything look fake like the shadows and the lighting was all wrong just all wrong all wrong all wrong um never mind i i liked it enough to give all these hiccups a pass uh peter judging by your review you seem to disagree with me that this is a good watchable entertaining movie um why do you insist on being wrong I think it's you who's wrong, Sonny, and I just have to say that you're, it sounds like you're in denial. Oh, oh, boo. I wish I had a mute button. I would go right to Alyssa. <laughs> no, I didn't like this movie very much. I wanted to like it. I like Kenneth Branagh. I didn't mind Murder on the Orient Express, which is, this is basically a sequel to. It was Branagh's previous Agatha Christie, Hercule Poirot adaptation. Um, I grew up watching Hercule Poirot mysteries, you know, on PBS uh, with my parents. Uh, we have a big stack of Agatha Christie novels at my house, even though I, I have to admit I have read uh, very, very few of them and have not read the, the novel uh, Death on the Nile here. Um, but uh, I wanted to like this movie. It's like the sort of thing that should appeal to me. And it, it just didn't work for me. Uh, so a big part of it was that it felt not just cheap, but sort of but sort of. Um, Cheap in a way that I felt like was contrary to the appeal of a kind of movie like this, uh, right? So the 
um, this is a this is not quite a giant budget film, but it cost about ninety million dollars to make, and it should feel luxurious. And instead, we had these kind of cheap-looking sets. Like they actually looked sort of like stage sets in a lot of ways, even when they were even when they were scuffed up to look, you know, like they'd actually been worn and used. They didn't feel all that luxurious. And then they're, you're constantly seeing the CG outdoors, and so it just felt like all of this was happening, uh, like in the midst of John Favreau's The Jungle Book, except not quite as good, right? The CG was not nearly as, as effective even as in that movie. In that, in that movie, it was a little bit weird, right? They're, they're, it's like they're going through the uncanny valley of the kings the whole time. Um, and it's, it's just, it's super distracting. And then the, I felt like the, 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 the plotting in this movie is, uh, it's, not, it's not too convoluted, but it is quite slow. And the pacing, I think, is really off. The central murder doesn't happen until almost exactly midway through the movie, about one hour in. And in, I would like to say, oh, that's just careful, methodical plotting, right? It's slow moving, and it's, but it's like it's getting you somewhere. It doesn't build tension at all. You know exactly what's going to happen. You're just sort of marking time waiting to get there. It's very clear who is going to die first and also who's going to, who the killer is going to be from about scene three or four here. I, just, I mean, I had in my notes that I, like, I wrote out the exact thing that was going to happen uh, almost, almost exactly by like 20 minutes into this movie. And so there's a 40 minute stretch uh, through, through the sort of first part of act two just feels like, what are we doing here? Let's let's knock some people off and get this movie going because the movie does actually get somewhat more interesting in the second half, but it but it takes so long to get there. And I felt like it really burned a lot of goodwill beforehand. I also just didn't feel like the stars or the costumes uh, beyond the setting, this, I didn't feel like the stars or the costumes were really all that glamorous. They felt, they felt sort of contrived to me in some way. They felt like they weren't... Like there's something there was no sort of real texture or or like actual like luxury to them. It was like they were designed to sort of give in an almost stagey way the impression of luxury without actually having it. And it, so it just felt it felt sort of not quite like a, a you know, PBS or BBC level cheap uh, adaptation, but like something that was reaching for a, a kind of level of glamour that it didn't that it really didn't achieve at all. I remain shocked by how bad the ex the exterior background work was and like how bad even even little things like the cgi karnak on the nile um was with like the cgi sailboats around it. i i was like i was genuinely kind of shocked like like it needed the thing it reminded me the most of weirdly was uh the x-men origins wolverine movie with yeah. uh, which had some of like really genuinely just some of the worst CGI I've ever seen. Like when Wolverine's claws pop out, like it just it was like everything needed two or three more renders through the through the you know through the CGI process. It, it just or really pales in comparison to a lot of the kind of pricey stuff that we are seeing on TV right now. I've been watching the Book of Boba Fett and whatever else you might say about that show. The last couple of episodes in particular look really look really great. Um, and I, you know, I also happened to watch uh, the Last Night in Soho, which is a very different kind of movie, but another adult film, uh, you know, tar or a, another R-rated film targeted, you know, at adults. Right? It's not like a, a superhero film; it's an original um, by Edgar Wright. And that movie just looks so good, and and it yeah. does, and its period work feels so real and so tactile and so alive. Even though some of it is CG, some of it's just dressed up, um, you know, uh, street scenes, and. And Death on the Nile just looked tacky a lot of the way, a lot of the time. One yeah. of the things I think is interesting and tricky about filming this particular work is that 
I mean, you can't film on location both because Egypt is unstable, but also because it looks so radically different, right? I mean, Cairo has grown tremendously. Um, There's a lot more air pollution. Um, And, you know, most of all, the critical scenes um, that are shot at Abu Simbel, you can't do now because the statues from Abu Simbel, that whole archaeological site, had to be removed when they built the um, the Aswan Dam and um, flooded Abu Simbel, which is now under Lake Nasser, right? So those artifacts exist, but they're like they can't be reached that way. Right. My parents actually saw them in the original setting um, before they were moved, and that's like one of the things that I am always sad that I will never get to do, but. You know, you can't shoot on location, um, but yeah, it should have looked better, um, and it's it's a bummer. Um, Alyssa, you you like this novel, right? This is one of your yeah. I so I like um, I like Agatha Christie. I like mysteries a lot, and I actually I hadn't read Death on the Nile in a while, but after on my way home from seeing it, I stopped at my local bookstore and just picked up a paperback copy of it so I could read it again. And one of the things that's interesting about reading it and comparing it to the novel is that. It's a fairly brittle, almost nasty comedy of manners, um, much more so than it actually is a mystery. Like it's really just a sort of social novel in which everybody is a snob or a social climber or a crook. Um, And I mean, there are a couple of people who are decent in like a very sort of innocent way. Um, But there isn't the kind of sort of more complicated, textured human decency that – Branagh brings into the movie adaptation. And it's actually, I mean, there's are just, it's a very plot wise. It's just very different from the book itself. Um, But both the book and I think Branagh's adaptation get at the extent to which murder brings everybody's secrets to the fore, right? Like it's effectively, it's effectively a tool for exposing social tensions and um, the process of investigating a murder is a way to get at everybody's secrets, which are mostly motivated by sort of social opprobrium. Um, In the original novel, it's a lot of sort of class drama um, instead of Mrs. Van Schuyler and her nurse actually being, you know, in a long-term romantic relationship in the movie. uh, Mrs. Van Schuyler is a kleptomaniac in the book and um, her her nurse is basically a – has been hired to like look after her return stuff and smooth things over when she's caught stealing things. Right. So it's, um, you know, in both cases, it's, you know, um, it's social stuff, but, you know, for example, the Otterborns are, you know, they're a white family in the novel and Salome Otterborn is a failed novelist and alcoholic who basically abuses her daughter. Um, and, you know, it's a totally different dynamic here where Salome Otterborn is a really, you know, talented blues guitarist. She's really charming. Um, she has a good relationship with her daughter and that, the you know, change in the characters becomes a way to explore sort of upper crust racism instead. But um, I think both Brianna and Christy understand sort of what murder is good for as a storytelling tool and though they handle it differently um, – they're, both are quite both are both are effective in my reading of it. Um, I I agree with you about the CG looking terrible, um, Peter. But I enjoyed this more in part because I thought it was interesting and kind of enjoyable to see Gal Gadot play a character who is really an unappealing person. I mean, she you know as Wonder Woman, she has been so cast as this like sort of wide-eyed avatar of innocence and purity and having, you know, kind of playing against that 
um, as Lynette Ridgway. Um, and the movie doesn't lean quite as hard into her fundamental dislikability as the as the novel does. But at the same time, you know, Gadot does sometimes come across, you know, in person as a little aloof. Yeah, not even aloof, but sort of like reading the room wrong, right? And clueless? Yeah. And I thought that casting her in this role played on that in a sort of interesting way. Um, can, I, can I just interrupt real quick to ask Alyssa yeah. and, and I guess Sunny too, but like Alyssa, did you think she was good in this? Because I thought that she looked the part and was just extremely flat and didn't bring anything to the role. And I don't I dislike her as an actress, I, but I felt like this was, I felt like she yeah. was, and she was just as good in this as she was in Red Notice. No, I, 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 I have to. I disagree with that pretty strongly. I think she, I think she is, she is playing again. I, I think she is playing the character about, about perfectly. There's, there's an aloofness to her. There is like a casual cruelty to her. There is a casual cluelessness to her what? as well. Just this idea that like, just because she can do something, she does. Um, and that's what she does throughout the movie. I mean, the the opening scene, she's stealing a a woman's fiance out from right underneath her, like in front of all of our eyes. And it's like it's borderline grotesque. And yet she sells it really well. I don't know. Yeah, I, I would say I'm more on Sunny's side um, on this. I mean, she she plays entitlement very well. I thought anyway. I thought the opening scene was the point where she was used best in the film. But it struck me that, like, I mean, I thought, or not the opening scene, but the scene after the prologue uh, at the, uh, the the first time we were in the Blues Club. Um, but it honestly, it struck me that she was fairly flat there. It's just that Branagh shot her well. And I, I, I mean, maybe this is, you know, uh, maybe I'm not giving proper credit to, you know, who did that, who made those scenes, that scene work. And I think that's one of the better scenes in the movie. But it struck me as all of these characters are flat and schematic. They're there to, they have one secret that comes out uh, and then, right, and like, they're there to enact something, like sort of, they're motivated by exactly one thing. You kind of, you can't tell really anything about any of them. And the actors don't give these, give the characters much more life with the maybe exception of Branagh himself. I just, it's everything, oh, I, everything I, read incredibly one note to me again with the exception of Branagh and Poirot but even there he just comes across he's like been reinterpreted as a superhero with weirdly where his origin story is how he got his mustache just a totally bizarre choice uh and I it just I I I was totally disconnected from every single one of these characters and I didn't I didn't feel like there was anything going on there besides each one of them has to show up have their secret they do one thing that you don't understand that is then explained by their secret, and then that's the movie. Oh, I I disagree. I mean, among other things, I thought it was really nice to see Letitia Wright on screen again and be reminded of, you know, just how delicate she can be when she wants to be. And it's kind of a bummer that I would bet she has probably kind of blown up her career over the last year. And yeah, we should note that this movie was shot in uh, – the, at the end of 2019, pre-pandemic. Yes. Um, you know, I thought that um, Don French and Jennifer Saunders have actually worked together a lot in the past. We're like a quite good two-hander in part because they are characters who are they're, – they're people who are for most – for like all of their public appearances 
are playing what turns out to be a role. Um, and then, you know, that when that is revealed, you know, you get to see their real selves. I thought those actresses had, you know, worked well together. Um, I thought that was actually, you know, a kind of touching modern, but not too modern interpolation, right? Like in the late 1930s, you definitely had, you know, lesbian couples living together under these sort of semblances of being old maids, et cetera. Um, and I, I thought that was actually quite nicely done. I did find Russell Brand really distracting. Like it took me a while to figure out that that was Russell Brand. And then I was like, wait, isn't, this is just wrong. It's like someone leached a bunch of his essence out of him and he's playing this physician. Um, so I, you know, I wouldn't say I thought it was like a uniformly greatly acted movie, but, um, there were a couple of performances in there that, that hooked me more than clearly they did you, Peter. And I'm always, I'm always up for Army Hammer being like kind of big and dumb and attractive and like occasionally flashing like real glimpses of anger. Like that is, that is his best, uh, I think mode of work. And he does, he does a good job here with that. I like, I don't know, man. I, I think you're, I think you're way off on this, Peter. I think you're way off. Apologize. Apologize to the movie. I'll never apologize to you, Sonny, but I'll apologize to Alyssa. All right. That's fair. Uh, all right. So what do we think? Thumbs up or thumbs down on death on the Nile? Alyssa. Thumbs up. It's enjoyable. Peter. Thumbs down. Thumbs up. Peter loses again. All right. Uh, so that is it for this week's show. If you loved it, uh, make sure to check out our members only bonus episode coming Friday to atma.thebulwark.com uh, on the dearly departed Ivan Reitman and his body of work. Make sure to tell your friends. A strong recommendation from a friend is basically the only way to grow podcast audiences. If we don't grow, we will die. Uh, if you did not love today's episode, uh, please complain to me on Twitter at Sunny Bunch, and I will convince you that it is, in fact, the best show in your podcast feed. See you guys next week.